This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is Paul Verschur with the Convergent Science Network podcast and we're here at the 10th anniversary uh, summer School, the Barcelona Cognition, Brain and Technology Summer School. And I'm here with, with Lynn Jurek and Bashir Yaraya, uh, who are presenting this morning their, their collaborative work on anesthesia, the brain, the thermocortical system, and also how we can develop animal models of this. Um, so, now, Lynn, how do you think the kinds of systems you're looking at are helping us understand how the brain works. So the particular angle that you take of anesthesia, how is this really helping and how is it strategic? I think it's very important to know what we are doing in everyday clinical work because um, so I'm an anesthesiologist at the beginning and when I started my, my, my residency in anesthesia, the first question I asked was at one moment, how anesthesia works on the brain? And the answer I got at the very beginning was, okay, it works, why do you ask this question? <laughs> so that's why, um, that's why where came the idea to, to study anesthesia, because uh, at some moment the problem of anesthesia was to, to make it safe for patients. So uh, they, there was a lot of improvement uh, in the hemodynamics of anesthesia, in the in the respiratory field of anesthesia and so on, but not really in the in the neuroscience fields of anesthesia. So it was like at some moment uh, you can get a, uh, a shutdown of the brain. Okay, it's nice. Uh, uh, people don't remember what happens, but then you 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 don't. At the beginning, when I started my residency, there was not much more that was known about mm -hmm. anesthesia, and so at some moment it was like uh, I want to move. To, to know better what I'm doing, to take at some moment perhaps better care of the patients I, I have in, in charge. Mm -hmm. So it's fair to say that yeah. actually we don't really know why anesthesia works. No, I, th I think today we know more than 10 or 15 years ago, okay, but still today we, we don't really know why people lose consciousness with the different drugs we mm -hmm. use in right. everyday life. And oh. so what was really impressive in also your talk is the overview you gave of the different, let's say, interventions we have available today to induce these states of consciousness that you might use in, in the mm -hmm. surgery ward. Um, so, so what are the, the most dominant interventions that, that you're using? I think so between the most dominant drugs we use in everyday clinical practice, there's propofol. Propofol is used uh, everywhere in the operating room. Uh, also, for the volatile agents, is most sevoflurane, sometimes isoflurane, which is more older drug. And then if you have patients in intensive care unit that are not very stable, you use ketamine because it doesn't act on the hemodynamics of mm -hmm. the patients. So right. I think these three are mostly used and probably in the future what will be used at least in the intensive care unit, probably dexmetodomitin, because it's thought to induce a, a sleep-like state, mm -hmm. what would perhaps be more physiological condition for the patient. But that's right now more in experimental phase, or that's already being used? It's already being used in intensive care units, mm -hmm. yes. When okay. you wake up patients at some moment to induce like a sleep-like state. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Right. But now the the pathway of action of propofol and ketamine, and, and this also will be relevant later when we look at you at understand your and analyze your data, is is rather opposite. Yes. Yeah. It's completely the opposite on on the brain. So so uh, so propofol. So we can say propofol is act, act essentially driving the inhibitory system. Yes. Right. This yeah. is fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. In in a rather non-specific way. Yes. Okay. Well, well, ketamine is more specifically acting on the excitation on the inhibitory system. Yes. Right. Because it acts on the NMDA receptors on the, yeah. on the GABAergic cells. But are, is there some sort of regional specificity to that in any way? Uh, let's say uh, for the ketamine drugs, it's mainly acting on the cortex, not on the subcortical regions, and on regions like the, 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 the hippocampus, the amygdala mm -hmm. of the hippocampus. And for propofol, it's thought that at the beginning it acts uh, on the cortex, and in a second phase of action, it acts on, uh, on the subcortical regions. Uh, there are human studies, so one human study by Lionel Vili who showed this uh, like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Patients. So, so, but, so this is already one, one mystery that we should yeah. try to clarify, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. We, have, we have these two drugs. They in some have an opposite effect on the inhibitory system of the yes. cortex while still leading to the same outcome, yeah. right? loss of consciousness. So, so we, we have to solve that one before this podcast is over. And, and this is also what you have been trying to do, following very specifically uh, a very unique paradigm that, that has been pioneered in the lab where you both are working, which is a local and global paradigm, right? So yeah. um, I don't know which of you two would like to, to speak for the local global paradigm, but Bashir, you're, you have been very active in that. So what's so interesting or unique about this local global paradigm? The local global paradigm is a series of sounds that you can listen to. This is what we call a paradigm. Mm, it was uh, the idea came in from our uh, friends and colleagues, Sanisas uh, Dehan and Lionel Nakash. What does it mean, uh, local versus global? So if you listen to small sounds like beep 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 boop, you have the same sound, identical sound coming in, and then what you call a deviant. So you violate a rule at the local level because it is a small tiny uh, scale of time. But uh, this is, uh, have been investigated for decades, and if you do uh, EEG, called ERP, Nathanael described what we call famously the mismatch negativity. Uh, people were excited about it, uh, tried to, uh, uh, to uh, perform this paradigm in anesthetized people, in people emerging from coma, but unfortunately, it was not discriminative of loss of consciousness. So even without consciousness, your brain, you can still process this mismatch negativity or the local uh, part of this local global uh, uh, paradigm. So the trick there was to multiply the sequence, this local sequence, several times, and this time introduce a violating sequence. So the new sequence that comes by the end, like, for example, boop, Boop, beep. This last sequence is violating the other one. This is the global violation. And it turns out that it works fantastically because you really need to be conscious to process this uh, global effect and that uh, to have your brain realizing 
the sequence violation. If you have, a, for example, a, a, a vegetative state with a patient that uh, never recover any consciousness, then you definitely cannot realize this global part of it. Mm -hmm. And do you think you can stack these sequences indefinitely? Is it like recursive? Currently, the structure of the the sequence by itself is not uh, aimed at recursive uh, detection. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, definitely uh, there are variety. We are developing the varieties of this paradigm uh, to uh, check for uh, syntax for numerosity. We did that even in animals, but so far, we we consider that as a, a marker of uh, conscious access. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so, so now we have this paradigm where in some ways we have local and we have global deviations, right? And then, so you, you see this as a, as a specific probe of, of states of consciousness or aspects of consciousness. The, the global part of it mm -hmm. as right. opposed to, to, to the local. This was demonstrated by Tristan Beckenstein, a paper with Lilian Akash and and they showed that in humans at least, uh, healthy people uh, distinguish very nicely the global effect from the local effect, meaning that the global effect will uh, need uh, a, a large-scale cortical activation, will induce large-scale activation. Um, actually, our contribution came in with the animal aspect of it. Mm -hmm. because the question was, in that time, uh, there were two questions. First, could we, uh, could we infer the same thing in non-human animals and our closest cousins, let's say, non-human primates? And second, uh, starting from an animal model, in which we can induce anesthesia, uh, could we could we manipulate this uh, global detection mm -hmm. with uh, the manipulation of consciousness? Right. Okay. So, so if, if we if we now look at this the, the human case, um, what we look at is now a paradigm that allows you to access, if you want, informational aspects of of conscious processing. So we're not saying much about the experiential phenomenological aspects of consciousness, right? This, this is not part of the discussion now. Exactly. Yeah? So we really focus on access consciousness. And then uh, what, what you see is a very distinct correlation between, let's say, these local sequences and, let's say, A1 processing in the temporal lobe or more broad activation in what, what in your center is called the, the global neural workspace. Absolutely. Right? So... What are then the core nodes in that global workspace that you observe in this in this paradigm? So, uh, if uh, the, the regions we activate uh, with uh, this local global paradigm, and especially for this uh, global effect, there are parts of the, the prefrontal cortex, there are parts of the parietal cortex, uh, there is anterosingulate cortex and the posterior cingulate cortex, at least for the cortical regions that we activate with this paradigm. If you go to deeper structures, there are structures of the thalamus, uh, like the paraphysical nuclei of the thalamus, and uh, part of the striatum that you can activate mm -hmm. with, with, the, uh, right. with this paradigm. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so okay, so now now we have a starting point, right? So so then also you say, look, there's there's a form of conscious processing we can now manipulate. We have a neural substrate, and then indeed the big step, as you also earlier said, Bashir, the big step was now to bring that to an animal model because then you would have more experimental control, right? So how well did that generalization to the animal model really work, Lynn? Uh, it, I think it worked quite uh, quite well because at the beginning we had no idea if the animal could detect this global effect. What was quite sure that it could detect the local effect because there were uh, older studies with electrophysiology that showed that if you um, do invasive electrophysiological studies uh, in the auditory cortex that you can get the mismatch negativity that you can record in the auditory cortex. So we... Um, that at least what we expected then was the question could he detect something more complex because uh, if you want yes to learn like a rule like uh, uh, like if you have like five identical sounds then uh, you get this as a rule and at some moment you get this global deviant and uh, in all the animals that were tested, they were tested at several times uh, in, in the scanner. We had, uh, there are three uh, animals in total because for monkeys often you... It's difficult to have more animals because you have to be trained at the beginning. And the data we show were group analysis of, of, of this monkey. But if, if you look at the individual level, all the monkeys could get activations in the prefrontal cortex, the parietal cortex, anterior cingulate, posterior cingulate. And some also had activations in the, in the, um, in the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. But now, uh, what's the magnitude of these, of these differences between the local and the global uh, variations of the task? And h how does this magnitude compare to what you observe in humans? There is actually uh, two remarks there. First, it's there is a strong hierarchy. So uh, the local global paradigm introduces the notion of uh, hierarchical levels of uh, violations, of sequence violations. And that is really important. This is uh, in line with what we call the predictive coding theory. And uh, what we saw already in humans, we see exactly the same homology in monkeys, is that because the global violation is hierarchically superior to the local violation, it also activates uh, cortically, uh, a high cortically uh, organized uh, frontoparietal network, uh, whereas the local effect uh, was really activating the uh, let's say low-level auditory pathway, including uh, within the brainstem until A1. And we saw that exactly in a homologous way in the macaque, mm -hmm. meaning that in the macaque we saw the auditory pathway from the uh, uh, brainstem nuclei until A1 for this uh, low-level deviant, which is a local effect, while when we go to the global violation, the second level of hierarchy, you see... Uh, you see uh, involvement of both prefrontal and parietal cortex. And uh, we went even a little bit further to see how much uh, this is really specific to the global effect by uh, doing a technique in fMRI data called uh, psychophysical interaction, PPI. And um, this uh, put in a seed in A1. PPI could show that really global effect increased specifically, uh, brain activities increase specifically in these frontoparietal singular areas when the global deviant comes to the macaque uh, auditory uh, 
system. Okay. So, but, okay, so, so in, the, in the human case, we see some uh, frontal parietal signature of the global task, right? And then in, some of, in the macaque, you see something similar, also in fMRI, right? Exactly. We're doing fMRI in the macaque. But now we have, of course, this whole conundrum of homologs, right? What are homologs between macaque brain and human brain? And actually, if you just look at the, the pictures that you present also in, in your work, it would appear that, for instance, these, these plot, spots of activity are a bit more lateral in the, in the macaque case as compared to the human case. Maybe I misinterpret, but, but, but how do you deal with this issue of, of homolog, of homology? It's really a tough issue. Mm. Uh, I like the question because we, we are interested in that, in uh, uh, brain-monkey uh, comparisons, because this sheds lives eventually on the uniqueness of human brain, of course. And uh, technically, it remains very, very challenging to do uh, direct homology studies between uh, the anatomy of the primate brain and the human brain. There are already some tools existing in the literature. There are still um, a lot of work to do there. Mm -hmm. And we, we are interested to do that in the future right. uh, because it's uh, tough to compare uh, brain maps uh, by direct visual, uh, uh, visual uh, our visual system, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, and uh, the notion of homology is not uh, that trivial that we, we, we could mm -hmm. think. What was important in our case is uh, really to see that the two orders of uh, uh, two, two orders of violations, the two hierarchical orders of violations in monkeys, just like in humans, were paralleled by two hierarchical order of cortical mm -hmm. activations. That, that, that was important in our case. To, right. To but now imagine we do something stupid, which I like, because these are things I'm good at. And we just inflate or sort of in a very linear way map this macaque brain to a human brain. Mm -hmm. Would you predict that then the, 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 the nodes in this global network in the macaque would align with those in the human brain or not? Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure we can really fix the problem this way. Mm -hmm. There are tools in Caret, for example, Caret Software offers tools to do just this direct alignment mm -hmm. uh, by simple inflation. Uh, however, uh, you need to keep in mind that uh, the uh, human uh, development uh, of a human brain was not just about mm -hmm. inflation of volume, as you sure. know, mm -hmm. but also of specification mm -hmm. and uh, local specification, and on top of it, uh, all the uh, education and training. Mm -hmm. uh, th th this mm -hmm. is clearly one of the challenges in the next mm -hmm. years, is how to develop really uh, proper tools to do these direct comparisons. Mm -hmm. Because with uh, uh, the ability to train monkeys, and especially macaque monkeys, to sit in the scanner and to listen to the exact same paradigms in the same condition than the human counterparts, we, we start to, for, for a while already, with Wonderful, Nikos Dobrothetis, and Doris uh, Sao, and other people, uh, we, we start to, to have this uh, unique opportunity. We ha I have two maps for exactly the same experimental setup. How can I deal to have a direct comparison, a computational uh, comparison? That's mm -hmm. something we, we, we are uh, also right. working on. Mm -hmm. But what is interesting is that it might mean that uh, the midline structures of the macaque brain might be organized somewhat differently as compared to those of the human brain, even though, let's say, from a phylogenetic perspective, they're relatively close. Mm. Would you agree with that? 
uh, again, I would uh, I would say that uh, um, not only not only comparative anatomy is needed there, but we we need to automatize uh, tools based on tracer uh, mm-hmm. studies, for example, to, um, to to match the the, the two brains. Mm. Uh, will there be uh, uh, clear uh, transform between the, the, the two brains. If we think about uh, all the millions and uh, years of uh, evolution that made this strong job, uh, I'm not quite sure that we have an easy transform, direct easy transform. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. But then, so, so, okay, so we have this paradigm. We see that we go from a local process to a more global process. Okay. But now, what you're relying on is a paradigm that that assumes that the animal is basically passive but aware, or as the human is passive and aware in this resting state paradigm. And <clears throat> it's not that the resting state was invented because it's behaviorally so interesting. It's just the simplest thing that people can do as they sit in a scanner or lay in a scanner, uh, right, surrounded with this noisy equipment. So now we're forced to do it with the monkey as well. So that means, and also I brought this up in, in the talk, right, that the monkey is sitting there. We assume the monkey is sort of at rest and aware, but we have actually no real idea whether this is in any way pertaining to the consciousness of this macaque monkey, right? So, 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 how do you do you see this as a limitation of these studies that that the monkey that we have no way that there's no reportability that there's no no overt behavior coming out of this monkey? Um, do you see this as a limitation, or you don't think this is a problem? Mm-hmm. It is, of course, a limitation, uh, very clearly. Uh, mm. um, so uh, how to do to fix uh, the problem? Uh, one way is to train massively the monkeys to uh, report for uh, the detection of the uh, local violation versus the global violation, of course. Um, we thought about that. The problem with that is that it implies a lot of training with the paradigm. And uh, in our case, uh, we, we try to, uh, at least this were our strategy, uh, we, we, we discussed a lot before uh, starting this uh, research program, um, we try to keep really the monkeys naive to the paradigm. Because overtraining with the paradigm is always a confounding uh, source uh, for the interpretation. Now, I agree, you pronounce the word reportability. <laughs> uh, but I would say also that we, tr- we start to accept fMRI has reportability now in humans uh, with the uh, disorders of consciousness. When you see all this work by the Liège and Cambridge groups showing with this tennis imagery paradigm in uh, highly disabled people with a minimal conscious state, actually these people really do not report uh, except through uh, fMRI. So uh, fMRI activation starts to be an acceptable reportability. Let's well, say. but that's maybe more a message of hope, right? Because <laughs> it doesn't work in all patients. Right? No, no, uh-huh. no, no, it, it doesn't. So, um, but okay, but, but okay. So, so here we have our paradigm. We have a local global effect. We it's sort of let's say let's call it weakly analog to what you see in the human. I mean, I mean it weakly because we cannot really nail whether it's homologs or not but you see a local global effect involving frontal and parietal systems. So fantastic, right? Great. So now we have calibrated, we mapped the paradigm to the macaque monkey, but now the real stuff starts because now you start to manipulate these states of consciousness with propofol and ketamine and, and, and other drugs. So, so Lynn, what, what happened when you started to do that? 
So at uh, the very beginning, we had uh, we had to make sure that already that uh, the anesthesia protocol would work because uh, you cannot like this put your monkey in the scanner, put one drug, and then see what happens. Uh, there was a lot of work that was done outside the, can the scanner bec before do going to the scanner to make sure that already the anesthesia level was uh, stable at every during the uh, whole experiments. So the anesthesia uh, model was based like for propofol, it was uh, and also for ketamine after. It uh, was based on behavior scale of the monkey because you want to go to general anesthesia. So normally general anesthesia, you are, you are not conscious. And then we had like behavior tests that we did in the monkey. And also um, uh, you, make you had to make sure that you have uh, a stable EEG pattern on uh, f for your anesthesia. Because you cannot say that you use like uh, X milligram uh, per kilo of a drug and then it will work for, for everybody. Of course, it, it didn't work for the monkeys. So we had to, to, to adapt uh, the anesthesia concentrations on the behavior scale and on the EG before doing the, the, whole, uh, the whole paradigm after in, in the scanner. And then, but so, so, okay, first you have to fine tune the paradigm, you have to yes. get to the right dosage. So, so you sort of nailed that problem. Of course, it's a very hard one, right? Um, but, but then, in some, you, you saw a differential effect of the ketamine and the propofol. It was not identical in its impact, right? No, no, it was it was uh, like really closely for, for the local effect was quite mm -hmm. uh, close, but. Uh, Let's say we weren't really interested in this local effect because uh, there's a lot of literature showing that if you do electrophysiology, even in humans, that if uh, you go to general anesthesia, often you lose some mismatch negativity. So we're not surprised that at some moment you, you don't get a local effect in these animals. What was quite surprising was for the global effect because could have been that okay you have no local effect you will have no global effect at all and so you have nothing you will activate your auditory system when we present all the sounds or do the contrast for all the sounds for fmri that was at least what we were expecting because uh, it is reported in literature that uh, the sensory cortexes are, are still active under anesthesia but not, not beyond and then at the beginning, we were quite surprised that we had no local, ef no global effect at all for ketamine, and that still we had activations, uh, especially in the prefrontal cortex of propofol. Mm -hmm. So that was one explanation could be that they act on different receptors, and that mm -hmm. what gives these explanations. But it's not completely sure. We cannot completely make sure that this, mm -hmm. that this. <laughs> No, but the, so the main thing that, that you observed, that you also described, is that with ketamine, you don't yeah. see the activation of this frontal parietal network, yes. right? Well, with yeah. propofol, you do. But yeah. now in the propofol case, is this frontal parietal network then still identical to what you might see in the control yeah. case? No, no. When you compare it to the wake state, what you see that you still get activations in the prefrontal cortex, but activations you never get is in the parietal cortex. Mm -hmm. So whatever condition you test, uh, whatever analysis you do, you all the time with propofol, you block the activations of this global effect in the parietal cortex. Mm -hmm. You can get it in the auditory system, you can get it in prefrontal regions, but never in the parietal cortex. So is, that, yeah. and is that a significant observation in your, in your mind, that it's a in particular mm -hmm. affecting the parietal 
part of this frontal parietal network? I think it's it's quite significant because there is like a lot of literature showing that you have a prefrontal parietal deconnection with, with anesthesia. There are a lot of work done uh, by George Mashur in the U.S. showing that you have really deconnection with all the anesthetics, what, whatever the anesthetics you use, like propofol. He showed it with, cat with ketamine, with sevoflurane on EEG data, and he shows that all the time you get a deconnection mm -hmm. between the prefrontal cortex and but the you show a bit cortex. more, right? It's not disconnection, it's disappearance. Okay. Yeah, it's disappearance <laughs> of activation. It's, it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's actually yeah. more extreme than that, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, it's a disappearance of activation, mm -hmm. yeah. So, but, but that, that would suggest, mm -hmm. and it's also maybe something we can get back to later, that mm -hmm. this parietal part of the frontal part is maybe much more of a hub in that system than the frontal part. Yeah. Would you agree yeah. with that? that yeah. is, that's a yeah. working hypothesis? Yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's so, so, okay. so we have this differential effect of, of ketamine and uh, propofol, and then you start to analyze in, in much more detail, which is really very interesting, the, the, the specific organization that responds, right? You start to look at the effective connectivity, how is the effective connectivity then, then, then changed due to propofol in the context of this task. Um, um, so, because then that you could use that then again as also a marker for reinstating this excess consciousness, right? This is where, where we're going with that. So, so how, how useful was that analysis? We look at this effective connectivity and how it is then changed by these different drugs. What did you observe there? Interestingly, um, if you want to study uh, anesthesia or even consciousness, um, there are basically two, two different ways. There's a um, way where you challenge the brain with a task, with auditory stimuli. It's even easier in uh, people with uh, uh, eyes shut down. Um, as Lina mentioned, uh, people should really be aware of that. Under anesthesia, obviously, there's no shutdown of the brain. There's uh, still a strong brain processing of a lot of information, it's a lot of information. Uh, does it mean that there is a, a conscious access? Does it mean that there is a memorization of these uh, uh, data processing? But there is at least, for example, with the sound we, we display and with fMRI, we see very strong activation of all the auditory pathway, very strong. So I said a word to my colleagues, uh, surgeons, be careful of what you are talking during operations <laughs> because patient is listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, um, now another way is uh, to study the spontaneous fluctuations of brain activity, uh, so-called uh, uh, resting state. Uh, very, very uh, uh, extended uh, field of neuroscience now since the pioneer work of Marcus Regal in St. Louis. And if you look at these uh, spontaneous fluctuations, uh, uh, there have been work under anesthesia, but here we introduced uh, a new uh, way of analysis of these resting state uh, networks called dynamic resting states. Uh, what does it mean? It means that uh, uh, people who are familiar with resting states know that you scan your subject or your animal for 10 or 20 minutes without specific task, and then you analyze uh, called uh, what we call functional correlations. I would prefer the word uh, uh, functional uh, 
correlations over functional connectivity because it's more objective, but still. And uh, you will describe networks uh, that we call, for example, default mode network, attention network that will pops out uh, very easily through uh, some uh, code. And here, here you're uh, dealing with uh, the whole picture of your 10 or 20 minutes of acquisition uh, at once, while we know that even the uh, functional correlation between two areas fluctuates during all the session of acquisition. Sometimes could be stable. So uh, uh, there, here comes what we call dynamic resting state because uh, through a sliding window phenomena, it can also be done without the sliding window, you can uh, uh, cluster brain states. Uh, here we used uh, an unsupervised uh, method called k-means. Huh? Uh, cluster all these resting state data into several brain states. And these brain states prove to be extremely useful. Uh, what happens there? So we could see that uh, if we, uh, let's say there's uh, seven brain states uh, that explain your resting state uh, configurations, and uh, with the clustering of, brain, uh, of your resting state, you will do uh, the same clustering in the awake state, then androanesthesia, then propofol, ketamine, whatever the anesthetic, and with different dosages also of these drugs. Um, suddenly, we, we, we saw that there are brain states that are very close to the anatomical connectivity of the brain. And uh, those states, we will call them rigid states because at that moment when your brain is in this state for, say, a few seconds, your resting state is 100% explained by your connectomics. You have no freedom. <laughs> you are mm -hmm. jailed by your structure, your structure, right? your, structure yeah. your brain anatomy. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, high similarity between structure and function. And when it comes to the other part of the spectrum, we found a state that is completely the opposite. This is a configuration of resting state that is completely uncorrelated to the structure. And uh, we call it a flexible, it's a very high, it's high fle highly flexible uh, brain state. It means that at some point, your brain jumps from a state to another, and, uh, and these states are have completely different properties. Now, the nice finding we made uh, in the group is that when you are awake, most of the configuration of your brain can be explained by many, many brain states, and not only one, with a heavy shift to these flexible states. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you go to anesthesia, propofol, ketamine, even others, you see the exact opposite. It means that uh, your resting state is explained mainly by the rigid state, and it means that you have a, a strong influence of your connectomics to explain your spontaneous brain, uh, brain fluctuations. It means that these spontaneous brain fluctuations are not so spontaneous. They are, they are shaped heavily by the structure. Mm -hmm. So to, to summarize uh, this uh, description, let's say that uh, we could say somehow that being conscious, meaning being completely free out of our brain structure. Mm -hmm. Right. But the thing is, if you go to the brain structure itself, that's an estimate of a DTI. Yes. Right? And 
And DTIs is relatively incomplete in, in sort of assessing the structure of the brain. Absolutely. That's why actually in our study, we used, uh, we used an, uh, a database uh, that is not a DTI-based uh, database. This is Cocomac that summarizes all the uh, uh, literature of tracing in macaques. Mm -hmm. And there's a strong uh, literature of neuroanatomy. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so in our case, this, uh, the structure matrix uh, were coming from <coughs> these studies. Mm. Okay, so, so then we have these seven dynamical states in which you could cluster the, the resting state activity that you measured in the, in the macaque brain. Um, then we see that in the low entropy case, also, and you also showed that, that, let's say we're not conscious or we're close to sleep or we're under, under severe sedation, it's, it's perfectly matched to the structure, and in the case of wakefulness, the, we are sort of have a much higher variability that cannot be related to the structure directly. But do you see then a very discrete transition in that in those seven states? Like, is there a very sharp threshold? Like, if I'm mildly sedated, I'm immediately below that threshold somewhere, or it's a more gradual transition? It's a very good question. I think uh, for the moment with the data we have, we cannot answer the question because uh, when we did uh, this experiment, the animals were either in one state or another state. We didn't do transition studies. But I think it's something very important. We had a lot of discussions to do uh, future experiments with, uh, with transition states uh, to going from a wake state, but very slowly to an anesthesia mm -hmm. state. Uh, uh, even drinks that uh, which can last for several minutes, uh, so to go from one state to the other, and also the other way around to to see what happens when you go you are in anesthesia and you you wake up. But I think that's studies mm -hmm. we, we we have to do to to express really to know if it's s something you go from one from one country state to the unconscious state and you lose. Uh, some of this uh, brain states we described, or if there is a transition that could be slowly. Mm -hmm. And okay, but then they also highlighted the fact that you see very specific kinds of correlations disappear under under sedation, and then also it, it seems to be dependent on the kind of drug you are using, right? So we talk about the sort of the positive correlations or the negative correlations. So here we have this, this functional connectivity diagram. That means I look at the correlations across all the voxels that I'm, that I'm looking at. So how is this then specifically affected by, by either ketamine or, or propofol? Uh, what we saw for these correlation studies with propofol and with ketamine, uh, especially when you look at the stationary connectivity, but also when you look at the, the brain states that still present under anesthesia, that you mostly use, uh, uh, that you have a loss of mostly the, the negative correlations in the brain. There's still a lot of positive correlations that are still present in the brain. They are less compared to awake state, but there uh, are still many that are present, and what you lose completely, at least for these two drugs, are the negative correlations. Do you find that surprising? N not completely, because there is, I think, like the one hypothesis that uh, negative correlations could be important for information processing on the brain, and then when you're not conscious, you have no information processing, mm -hmm. and then we lose them. Right. So that's one idea. That's why I was not completely surprised mm -hmm. to find this. But you could also argue that since you mm -hmm. are manipulating the inhibitory system, 
Yeah. Right? That that might have a specific effect on your negative yeah. correlation because these are the guys yeah. who are sort of managing that part of the process. Yeah. Would yeah. that be reasonable as well or you think that doesn't make sense? No, that could, that could be another explanation. Uh-huh. I never thought I think of this one, but it uh, could be a good explanation too. Huh? Okay. Let's try that. You tell me next <laughs> okay. time. But now the other thing is that then uh, what was really exciting because y- you are coming from, both of you are, are um, fully committed to the global neuronal workspace idea. And so, so you then started to look at the nodes that would the frontal parietal nodes that would make up this this global neuronal workspace and you start to look at how they would be specifically affected by either propofol or or ketamine and then in some sense surprisingly the effect was sort of like indistinguishable like coupling across the global workspace nodes disappeared in both cases sort of in a comparable way and this is a fair summary i think no so uh, if you want to, to link uh, both uh, findings, for example, uh, with the task, with the local global task, and in the resting state, um, it's true that findings were more homogeneous with the resting state approach. So uh, all anesthetics share the same signature, which is uh, the, uh, the loss of independence of resting state from uh, brain uh, structure. Whereas with the task, it was more subtle uh, and more, uh, there's a myriad of possibilities. But actually, there is, a, there is an apparent paradox. And a, a way to, to match both uh, is that uh, uh, the idea that the integrity of this global neural workspace is really key. If you take a piece of it, then the whole system falls down. Mm-hmm. And it looks like, uh, I mean, th- there was always a mystery. How can anesthetics that have completely different molecular targets, different neuronal population targets, different uh, pharmacology, uh, and, and uh, post-receptor uh, uh, molecular events converge to the same result? I mean, I mean it looks uh, impossible huh, in terms of pharmacology. And actually, one of the potential explanation could be is that because they deprive the global neural workspace uh, in a different manner, partly, completely uh, from its uh, uh, information processing, but it's enough to disorganize part of it to, to lose completely mm-hmm. uh, the conscious access. Mm-hmm. Okay, but, but what I found surprising is that the effect is on non-specific. Right, so here we have two pharmacological agents that have very different impact on, on neural circuits. And at this very macroscopic level, which we analyze the system, the impact is actually indistinguishable, which, 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 which worries me a bit because for, from a global workspace perspective, it's an information processing view on the brain where you say, well, we have all these processors, they're competing for access into the conscious buffer, if you want. And... Um, they they start to broadcast into this buffer if, uh, when they are sufficiently driven, right? But now, in some sense, is it, here there's no signature really of such a buffer being maintained in any systematic way. It's sort of it's there, it's not there. It, it might be also, Paul, that uh, the the measure of resting state. Uh, uh, and its relation to structure is not really specific to the agent. It's, it's just because you end up uh, having a, a complete loss of consciousness. Uh, it's like a phenotypic biomarker, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
this is also a way to 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 explain why mm-hmm. when you do task you have more subtle differences and uh, while when we do the resting state approach it looks all the same mm-hmm. now th- this is actually a good an important point right because for instance in other studies of of consciousness in humans you you might see very distinct kinds of subnetworks for consciousness that's that's more metacognitive oriented towards the self and conscious states that are more oriented towards the external world right so so in, if you have actually uh, um, the kind of paradigm you're using here none of that is being controlled right so so maybe you're not driving the system efficiently enough to actually see anything that is really specifically impacting then that that excess consciousness that that you're after uh, b- because again uh, uh, something i uh, i like to say is that uh, uh, consciousness is an ambiguous word also so uh, you 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 mentioned metacognition mm-hmm. uh, uh, and self monitoring which is uh, uh, not necessarily what local global is probing uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is again another exactly. another uh, uh, view mm-hmm. of uh, consciousness mm-hmm. of self-consciousness right I agree. No, so but what, what I even though maybe it didn't appear like that but I was trying to support your point um, by by basically that I, I would not be surprised if this sort of resting state paradigm is yet not helping you it's it's it, it's more pulling you away from from where you want to be because there's no specific yes. the, the brain is not configured towards a certain goal so do you also see that as, I, as, as a challenge? I, I agree. And and actually what goes also in this direction is that this uh, signature with resting state similarity uh, is now uh, explored by other groups for other circumstances with loss of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group of Oxford who sleep, for example, and uh, at ICM at Petit Sapetrière with the, uh, and Liège with the, uh, people with disorders of consciousness. And uh, they are very exciting data, uh, finding again this, uh, uh, this same signature. And, and here we are beyond different pharmacological agents. We have mm-hmm. different conditions, different mm-hmm. uh, even brain anatomy sometimes with lesions. Right. Okay, but then... So th- so to close to close this part up, and then we, we go towards the thalamocortical system. The other thing that that I find really interesting about the data you present, because it's so specific, is that since you're the in also in the global workspace um, tribe, in some sense your data shows that that we should take global a bit with a grain of salt, right? Because like in the macaque brain, we talk about twelve identified nodes more or less, right? So how global, in your opinion? Should we really think about this global neuronal workspace in the context of the task that and, and, and the kind of manipulations that you have been using? The the, the term global actually uh, um, uh, refers also to the the, um, the global broadcasting of, of information, and actually there is no single paradigm that activates all the global neural workspace. So uh, obviously, uh, if you are uh, assessing, uh, uh, for example, an auditory paradigm, uh, you don't see uh, visual activations uh, and uh, vice versa. So uh, um, the GNW theory should not be seen as uh, just uh, an anatomical, uh, clear anatomical uh, uh, network uh, uh, as DMN, for example, or so forth, but as a uh, uh, a general uh, idea of uh, cortical broadcasting of, uh, of an information. And the fact that here the auditory information uh, went much beyond when there was a global violation 
and went to uh, uh, prefrontal areas close to frontal eye fields, for example, to intraparietal sulcus with area VIP, shows this uh, second-level uh, broadcasting of uh, information. But it doesn't necessarily tell you that uh, uh, we have X uh, nodes or Y nodes uh, in uh, specific uh, species. This is the way I see it. Well, but... <laughs> I understand, but you could argue that the global workspace, in the end, is talking about broadcasting it to some sort of buffer. You, you broadcast it to some sort of memory system, right? And then the question is, is that memory system what you what you now actually reveal in these paradigms, frontal parietal, as a memory buffer in which these broadcasts land? Or is this frontal parietal system you visualize, let's say, an auditory specialization of a much larger kind of buffer in which you can potentially broadcast it's it's really impossible to uh, to to answer uh, definitely uh, this question but if you would speculate what's your hypothesis <laughs> if i speculate i would say that uh, um, the 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 apparent homology we see uh, between the the, the macaque uh, response the macaque cortical response and the human cortical response let me know that we are really having a uh, description of uh, between brackets, a macaque global neural workspace, I mm -hmm. believe. Okay. So okay, so we have, so we have a starting point now to start to look at the details of of the mechanisms of anesthesia, right? And so so this local global paradigm has helped you in doing that. You revealed it now in the macaque. So now we have an animal model. So now we start to be, can become more specific in manipulating it. That's also what you do with your with your deep brain stimulation. Right, so why do you believe the brain stimulation might help you to then manipulate these these states of excess consciousness? Um, so uh, just let me uh, say a little bit uh, the the story and why we we got uh, into there. Uh, from a personal perspective, I. Uh, uh, I'm a neurosurgeon, and uh, when I started my uh, uh, residency in neurosurgery, end of the 90s, early 2000, uh, I was surprised by a category of patients uh, that uh, uh, have a strong, a big head uh, uh, trauma or a catastrophic uh, stroke. Uh, many of them die, unfortunately, but some of them, and more and more, thanks to uh, modern medicine, we are making these uh, patients uh, living, but unfortunately many of them in a very bad conditions. And uh, here it's not about motor recovery, but actually it's about consciousness recovery. Um, it's an increasing issue in, in our modern world. I mean, think about it, uh, 50 years ago there was no such uh, patients. It's like almost an invention of modern medicine because these patients until uh, the 50s with the appearance of the modern intensive care and surgical techniques died in 100% of the cases. I mean, the stroke was so uh, strong, uh, the trauma was so uh, ugly and uh, dangerous, uh, all of them died. So modern medicine is uh, producing a new <laughs> medical condition, which is a vegetative state and or minimal conscious state. And uh, it's really intriguing because uh, once the uh, phase issue, uh, the acute issue, uh, acute phase, sorry, uh, is, is done and they survive, they start opening eyes, family uh, are happy, but unfortunately it doesn't mean they are conscious, they are aware, they, c they, can, they are awake, awake, they have wakefulness, 
but not necessarily where. And I was intrigued by these uh, patients because uh, there was, uh, they could stay uh, weeks, months in the department. Uh, of course, rehab centers don't take them. And uh, now they start to have uh, uh, specialized centers for, for, for these patients. So, so there is an issue. There is an issue. And at the same time, there are famous personalities. We think about uh, uh, Aaron Sharon, uh, who passed uh, away a few years ago. Currently, Michael Schumacher. Uh, so in the headlines, we see more and more uh, these uh, conditions of uh, what we call disorders of consciousness. In the same time, uh, uh, deep brain stimulation, uh, which is a te surgical technique that consists of implanting electrodes inside the brain, became more and more uh, fashionable and more and more effective in other disease called Parkinson's disease. Uh, thanks to the work of uh, Professor Ali Melvi Benabid in Grenoble, uh, this uh, make it very popular, and now there's uh, something like 150,000 people in the world who are walking around you with these electrodes with Parkinson's disease or tremor. So, could you, because this uh, revealed to be a powerful mean to recover from Parkinson's, one of the idea was could we could we uh, actually do identify brain targets to do deep brain simulation to recover from consciousness loss. Mm -hmm. <laughs> of course, it's much more challenging. Yeah? But because consciousness now becomes a, uh, a neuroscience issue and not only a philosophical uh, question, and uh, now it's uh, in the lab, in many, many labs in the world, uh, it starts to be considered as a function, like motor function, like language, and because uh, the patient lost this function, it might be that there are techniques to recover from that. So uh, th this is general context. And uh, actually, uh, there are already some few reports in literature back uh, to some decades ago uh, with some groups in the world who tried to do thalamic stimulation to make vegetative patients recover. Why thalamic? Actually, uh, Thalamus have a very strong connections, a very widespread, at, uh, with large-scale cortical networks, frontal, prefrontal, parietal, uh, so uh, singular cortex, uh, precuneus, uh, all these uh, key areas for uh, uh, consciousness uh, treat conscious treatment. Uh, uh, so the idea was there. And we know also that thalamus is highly involved because some strokes of the thalamus can, uh, even small strokes inside the thalamus, can make consciousness disappear without any other neurological problems. Uh, that's how, how there's a convergence toward these DBS of thalamus to uh, try to restore consciousness. Mm -hmm. So but then, how successful have you been so far in restoring consciousness with deep brain stimulation? We, uh, in our lab, we are uh, doing preclinical work. We are not doing a clinical trial, but we are doing, uh, uh, we are using exactly the models that uh, have been developed by Lynn uh, using the anesthesia. Of course, uh, anesth uh, anesthesia is not the perfect model of a vegetative state or a minimal conscious state after stroke, but uh, uh, this is uh, still a model where now we control very well, uh, including uh, with behavior, with fMRI, with EEG, the level of uh, conscious access and conscious state. 
uh, with the local global uh, paradigm on top of it. So we uh, started uh, from these models uh, in the mechanics and we inserted uh, deep electrodes uh, within the thalamus with uh, several areas actually of the thalamus to test the specificity, which part of the thalamus. And to our big surprise, actually, uh, we found that the manipulation, the electrical stimulation of intralaminar uh, thalamic nuclei could uh, suddenly induce very strong phenomena, very strong reaction in the monkey. It means that the monkey who was deeply sedated, really, with a deep general anesthesia, starts having uh, twitches with sometimes strong movement that were not seizures because we control with EEG, they start to have a spontaneous breathing reaction, increased heart rate as if they were awakened from the anesthesia while they still receive in their veins a lot of propofol. But how can we be sure that you are now not in the same position as the family members of the coma patient <laughs> that opened the eyes. Excellent question. So uh, uh, this is the advantage of the lab also, is to control the experiment and to add uh, experimental tools. Uh, there are several ways. So first, we have uh, an EEG monitoring, and we see clearly that uh, we enhance cortical activity with the thalamic uh, DBS to a level that starts to uh, resemble uh, to uh, wakefulness of the same uh, macaque uh, when he's uh, completely awake and uh, conscious. This is not enough. And here comes again our local global paradigm. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, uh, as you could guess, our favorite paradigm, uh, because uh, local global paradigm is a very good way to interrogate the conscious access of the animal during this awakening by DPS. Right. So we performed a local global paradigm in this period of time when the animal starts to be awake. I cannot tell all the results because this is ongoing work, <laughs> ongoing works, but I can say that's very encouraging mm -hmm. results there. Right. No, of course, in that sense, it's fantastic how systematic you have been right, in building this up. This is really taking a lot of discipline and effort. This is really not easy, and I, I respect that a lot. But one thing that you also shared with us this morning was that you also found an explanation of why the stimulation intensity has to be so high, because, interestingly enough, it, you could sort of only induce this sort of reawakening, these reawakening signatures with high levels of stimulation of 100 hertz and above, and not with lower frequencies. So in the interlaminar nucleus or close by in the thalamus, you must be stimulating at a huge intensity to trigger the system to start to reawaken. Why is that? Yes. Uh, so uh, in terms of frequency, even if movement disorders you know, with Parkinson's, you need to be higher than 100 hertz. Uh, then comes the intensity uh, issue. Uh, the intensity actually will play with the uh, activated tissue uh, volume. So uh, uh, we can now model that uh, and have an idea about which nuclei of the thalamus are involved within this stimulation. Very importantly, we control this condition. It means that with the same, with same uh, uh, sets 
setting and uh, programming parameters with the same high intensity and high frequency. We manipulated areas of the brain that are really close on the same electrodes, actually in the same condition, with absolutely no uh, behavioral uh, manifestation and uh, no EEG uh, changes. That is really key mm -hmm. in these right. kind of experiments. But how do you then explain that we need these huge intensities? So why does why don't you get this kind of reawakening at lower intensities of simulation? Uh, so in terms of uh, frequency, for example, this is actually a general question. It's still not uh, solved even for Parkinson's patients who receive the same therapy DBS uh, every day uh, in many uh, places in the world. We did some preliminary work in uh, our models, uh, not the anesthesia models, but in uh, another uh, program, and we could see that if we can we compare high frequency versus low frequency using fMRI again, which is also a favorite tool, we uh, only higher frequency could activate cortical areas. And now in the field of DBS, there are a lot of arguments and a lot of evidence that explain that most of DBS effect is not that deep, it's superficial, it's mm -hmm. large cortical networks activations. And it looks like you need higher frequency so that uh, this retrograde solicitation of cortical areas happens with mm -hmm. DBS. And that might explain why interlaminar would be particularly well-placed to do that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. But on the other hand, you could also argue that what you see are just, let's say, more the brainstem systems reacting to the stimulation, and the, the, the signal travels downward towards midbrain and brainstem, and indeed what you're looking at is a monkey that is comparable to that coma patient. So how can you exclude that interpretation? Uh, I, actually, it might very be that it also happens. However, we have evidence of cortical uh, strong changes in cortex through EEG and through fMRI. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it would even be uh, uh, the best scenario that you have both uh, uh, reticular activating system uh, modulation and cortical mm -hmm. right. modulation. Okay, but still the the variability that you see under propofol and deep brain stimulation in the macaque, the kind of effective connectivity in cortex looks a lot more regular than in the awake state. It's not really identical. Yes, because actually uh, I showed very preliminary data. Okay. Uh, the work is ongoing, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, uh, we, we have also another uh, animal. We have much more acquired data mm -hmm. now that is uh, being analyzed. Okay. No, it's extremely interesting because maybe by driving this interlaminar system, you are reawakening cortex, but still in a more, let's say, structure-dependent way, and that's why I have this much more restricted islands of activation that you that you showed in your functional connectivity than the more broad connectivity you might observe under normal conditions. You mean in non-specific way? Yeah, uh, exactly. Actually, in, in the resting state. Uh, uh, absolutely. And, and we do see that. If mm -hmm. we, we do just resting state without any behavioral consequence, mm -hmm. resting state on minus resting state uh, off, we see cortical activations. However, here, what we could see is the controlled cortical activation for the global effect versus mm -hmm. 
the global deviant so 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 the global uh, so, sorry the global deviant versus the global standard so it's double control because you have uh, within the paradigm global deviant versus global standards and we control also we have uh, two conditions of stimulation at different intensities both of them inducing mm -hmm. cortical uh, activations mm -hmm. and it shows a real specific difference for the DBS condition right, okay. as compared to mm -hmm. the other one. Okay. Fantastic. Lynn, do you think that we can ever get away from using drugs to get people anesthetized? I hope so that one day we will not use uh, drugs to anesthetize, to anesthetize people because it would be much easier because then you don't need to, to intubate your patients to have mechanical ventilation or to have side effects on the hemodynamic part. Um, so I hope that it could work one day, uh, perhaps uh, not with DBS because uh, we will not implant DBS systems to, 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 to the patients who go to surgery for, for, um, for, for, uh, for another reason, but mm -hmm. perhaps uh, like systems with, I don't know, perhaps TDCS or so on, perhaps with specific But what parameters. do you think is a realistic target here? Let's say 50 years from now, let's take a, a reasonable time window. Um, I don't know. R for the time window, I have no idea. Okay, but what do you see as the next big step? The next big step, I think it's already understanding the consciousness better than we do now because there's still a lot of things we don't know about, about consciousness and consciousness processing. For the anesthesia part, what put, could be reasonable is to do all the analysis we did uh, also on, on EEG because we will not put fMRI in the operating room. And at then to get analysis to get uh, like a closed loop anesthesia with anesthetic drugs that are co completely, um, that, comple that uh, the EEG pattern or the ERP patterns control the anesthetic drug delivery and so in a closed loop manner. Mm -hmm. I think that it could be reasonable in a few years. There are already devices on the market who can do it uh, based like on spectral indices, but uh, perhaps uh, mm -hmm. like, right. like a better, yeah. better, better organization yeah. of this. Okay. So Bishi, one, one problem I'm still having, um, and then we're going to the finish line, but so, okay, we, we start with, with propofol ketamine. We know what it does. We're, we're, we're manipulating the GABAergic system, and the GABAergic system is actually pretty fast. The time constant is there, milliseconds, right? And now we try to make inferences about what this does to consciousness, also at the, at the mechanistic level, using a, a, a measurement technique that has time constants of seconds. So we're order of magnitudes away from it. So, so I th isn't this possible, possibly a problem? And also with, with the, the, the animal model you have, you could use other techniques that bring you closer to the time constants of the systems being manipulated. So, so first, do you see this as an obstacle that, that you use these techniques that are so slow that maybe you have no idea what's going on really in, in, at the me mechanistic level in this brain? So, so how, do you, how do you square that circle? True that fMRI uh, scans the brain every two seconds and uh, that's obviously a different time scale. Mm, I, I firmly believe, uh, like many neuroscientists, that there is no technique in neuroscience that can uh, solve all the problems, and only multiple approaches are uh, are there to uh, move forward. So in our case, we also have EEG, 
monitoring of these animals, which have a, a quicker uh, life uh, um, time scale. But definitely, uh, our objective is to go further and to have uh, access to the intracranial uh, recording uh, with the, the challenge to have multi-site recording uh, simultaneously. And uh, that's uh, one of our next uh, move. Okay, right. But um, so you leave the option open that maybe everything we discussed so far is is irrelevant because the dynamics that we have to understand is more is more is faster. I I don't think so because okay. uh, f take for example the the uh, uh, intracranial electrophysiology. Uh, if you combine fMRI and electrophysiology, if you know, for example, by through fMRI the most relevant signs to record, then this is. Uh, clearly the way to go uh, to go for mm -hmm. otherwise you would not put uh, thousands of electrodes on the mechanic brain to have access to the whole brain mm -hmm. and second uh, the dynamic resting state is uh, uh, now being modeled at the multi-second level people uh, groups like uh, Gustavo Deco are doing that of course it's a model that is put on the fMRI signal, but it's there, and uh, there are some interesting results. Mm -hmm. Okay, but of course, it's also a matter of how how good the predictions are of these models and how well they can be validated, right? Absolutely. And so on. So absolutely. It, but it's an incremental step. This is where we absolutely. But I believe go. firmly in these models, uh, providing that there is an, uh, uh, a mutual uh, exchange with uh, biological data. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, one of, uh, let's say, my dreams, is that we are able to model, for example, uh, the consequence of DBS, uh, almost whatever the site in the brain. Mm -hmm. uh, look, uh, DBS is now expanding for psychiatry disorders, for consciousness disorders, uh, on top of Parkinson's and other diseases, eating disorders. And the, the current paradigm in medicine and neurosurgery is uh, mainly to rely on single observations because one day there was a stroke here, there is a stimulation there uh, in unwanted nuclei. Uh, uh, so we move almost by chance. And uh, the idea is to change completely the paradigm, is to say, well, if I have a kind of flight simulator of the brain for DBS, then this model, if it is uh, well established, uh, and, and, uh, and I believe we can achieve that, then I start defining and rationalize and suggest targets for diseases in a completely rationalized manner. And mm -hmm. here, artificial intelligence, of course, will play a big role mm -hmm. because it will really uh, can uh, say and suggest, well, for this disease, with the, all what we know about brain imaging in this disease, very clearly these two targets are, are key, or this one is probably the most efficient or the most uh, convenient. Uh, so so that's, I see it as a main uh, way and a shift in paradigm in terms of uh, uh, neuromodulation and neurosurgery in the mm -hmm. future. Right, very good. So, Lynn, um, so you, you are now in this field also as, as a physician, right? Yeah, on the one hand, you have these concerns about your patients, then you understand these animal models, you look at the mechanisms of anesthesia. What do you see as Lynn's law that we should follow to understand the brain? That's a very good Don't question. Don't look at Bashir. Uh, yeah, that's <laughs> a very good question. 
I'm not sure that I, that I have a law that you mm -hmm. have to follow. At least not for the moment, perhaps one day. Uh, I don't know, it's, it's a very tough question, so <laughs> I think I have to... Okay, you get a bit more time. Bashir, yeah. what's Bashir's law? <laughs> uh, so again, for, for anesthesia, uh, I think this field... Is for the study of the brain in general, right? We're, we're yes. We're going microscopic now. Yes. Um, uh, something I'm, uh, I find it interesting from a philosophical uh, point of view is uh, the finding that uh, consciousness emerge when resting state is uh, freed from the structure. Mm -hmm. uh, think about uh, we are building uh, neural networks, machines, robots. Uh, we may start inducing uh, uh, some resting state activity in these circuits. Uh, what would happen if we start inducing brain, uh, sorry, ship <laughs> uh, configurations mm -hmm. that are completely independent from the uh, structure of the microprocessors and the transistors, would we uh, at least at some time assist at uh, the emergence mm -hmm. of an artificial consciousness? Mm -hmm. That's, that's a law? You see this as a law? It, <laughs> it sounds like a prediction. <laughs> I don't know, but, uh, but the, the, this would be a huge change because if machines start to acquire consciousness mm -hmm. then uh, there's a big uh, shift I think in that case. Absolutely. Does it worry you about machines? No. Get, okay. Mm -hmm. But that means what you're talking about is some sort of virtualization, right? So you, Absolutely. Right? So it's, it's, it's a virtu virtualized system. Absolutely. Virtual machine. Absolutely. Yeah? Okay. So then, Lynn, um, now that we don't have Lynn's law, <laughs> which is a real <laughs> failure, so we should work on that, um, now, five years from now, I'm going to come to Paris. Uh, I'm going to visit you at Neurospin. And um, I want to see whether a, a, a prediction you make today was falsified or verified five years from now. So what's the one prediction that you feel is, is most important to see tested in that time frame? Uh, I think what we want at least to test in the five years or the few years that will come is to to see how the feed forward and the p feedback works uh, under anesthesia because uh, uh, if you use the, all the fMRI studies, you can make prediction about feedback feed forward, but uh, it, given, it doesn't give you a real answer. So the only thing that you can do is during invasive electrophysiological studies to, to verify this, that you have really, uh, that feed forward is present on anesthesia, at least what, what the assumption is today, that feedback is completely blocked. So I hope that in the next five years we can get answers on this. Great, very good. Hey Bashir, what's your prediction? Because I'm going to find you in the same room five years from now. Pleasure. <laughs> but then with another prediction, uh, what is it? Prediction is the following. Um, I'm not sure we'll keep uh, thalamic DBS as the ultimate goal of consciousness restoration. I believe the computational model would predict where should we stimulate. It would be deep, it would be superficial, it would be combined uh, with non-invasive and invasive and uh, being able to build on this technology for consciousness restoration based on the computational model. Okay, very good. Well, then Ulrich, um, Bashir Yarya, thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you very much. much. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems. 
project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.